Story Futures Academy. One of the aims of this podcast is to give you an insight into the actual making of real immersive projects. By the end of this series, we hope you'd have got an insight into this world and be able to have a think about how you may apply your skills to it. Today, we're looking at how you manage an immersive production. What are the nuts and bolts of keeping a production on track? And what skills do you need to complete a project on budget and on time? In general, it'll be your producer who's really keeping the show on the road. The best place to start is a schedule. Map out the weeks you've got to do it and put some man hours against it and then risk manage the hell out of it. I'm Shahani Fernando and this is the Story Futures Academy podcast. I find myself floating, floating, floating. Welcome to virtual reality or VR. You don't know what it's like to stand where I'm standing. Just look around you. We're delighted to have the team behind the award-winning Doctor Who The Runaway VR experience to give us a few tips about how they tackle immersive projects. My guests today are Zilla Watson and Katie Grayson. Zilla ran the BBC's VR Hub, where she commissioned and produced a slate of award-winning VR experiences, which spanned current affairs, music, drama, and ranged from an experience about the suffragettes, Make Noise, to a piece about 1943 and the Berlin Blitz. We're also so pleased to have Katie Grayson on the show. She's head of experience at Passion Pictures, one of the leading production companies specialising in, amongst other things, animation and documentary. She was the producer at Passion who led on the Doctor Who project, a collaboration with Zilla at the BBC. And so it's fitting that they're both here today. So we're going to talk about all sorts of things, but I want to begin with you, Zilla. What did you set out to do when you started the VR Hub? We had a really audience-focused approach. We'd got a lot of um, insight into audiences from an ethnographic study, and we really wanted to understand whether the BBC's core purposes to inform and educate and entertain could be established through VR. So it was a very strategic project, which involved commissioning some fantastic content. But the point of it was to really understand the wider market considerations for VR, the audience potential for VR, and and really understand what we'd have to do to make it all work. And how did you decide what to produce? Because, as I said, you've spanned loads of different genres, current affairs, comedy, drama. What drove what you decided to make in the end? We wanted to showcase the best of the BBC. We also wanted to involve different departments and give them a chance to be involved in an innovation project. We did do um, two really strong and important journalistic projects, Damning the Nile and the Congo, because we wanted to showcase the um, BBC's journalism. And because of our extensive network of bureaus abroad through BBC News Gathering, we were able to get to places that I think it would be very, very hard to get to otherwise and tell extraordinary stories about the world. I'm Alistair Leith, the BBC's Africa correspondent, and the team and I will be taking you on a great adventure up this magnificent river. We'll be exploring its history its riches, its poverty, and its future. Katie, tell me a bit about Passion. How is it different to other studios that you've worked with? I mean, I came from a world where 
it was a very natural meeting place for kind of the the animation and, and technical side because I did a lot with with games and especially on the storytelling side in cinematics and, and trailers. I then moved to a company called Inition, which was so crazy technically ambitious in everything they did. It was all led by the software and the tech that actually it's quite nice to take the things I've kind of learned there, <laughs> all the hard things about software development and, and move back into more a sort of storytelling focused company. And that is what passion's about. Whatever we do, there's, you know, there's a story and, and a, a kind of a, an emotional appeal at the heart of it. It's interesting you talk about that software development background because in many ways, making immersive content is a bit like making something that's a product that you've actually got to test and iterate and check that it works with audiences. I mean, presumably a lot of that work really helped with what you're working on now. Where the two worlds collide is still, I think, a very messy place. An animation pipeline is is built on efficiency on, you know, making the right decisions right at the front, making sure, you know, making sure you're putting all the money in the final polish. It's the absolute opposite of of software development. And the point at which where those two worlds meet, I think this is, you know, you need lots of people talking about this because I'm really interested in how other people manage it. And what is the main role of the producer in that world? Is it kind of problem solving and straddling those worlds of technical and art and storytelling? What are the key skills that someone managing these projects really needs? And the ability to prioritize and translation, <laughs> whether it's, you know, whether it's from the team to the client, whether it's a client back to the team, whether it's, it's kind of software to art, all of those things generally require some kind of level of translation and making sure that, that everyone's working to the same goal um, and nothing's getting lost in, in the cracks. Because I think, I think that's, that's the underrated skill of a producer in this space. No, absolutely. Zilla, what are your thoughts on that? I think there's a really important planning role as well. You've got to understand a lot of technical processes and plan how you're going to bring a huge number of things together and have enough time to do it. So I think that sort of understanding and scoping and then communicating that to people and holding different people's hands through that process to bring it all together is really important. And the most scary thing about VR is it only really all comes together quite late on. So in terms of managing expectations and making sure you've done the things that enable it to all come together in the last few days is critical. And how much does a producer overseeing this kind of work need to be across all the detailed disciplines, you know, game engines, 3D modelling, animation? What kind of base knowledge do you think you need to have to be able to run a project? I think one of the confusing things um, is what is a producer in VR? Um, a game producer is more like a production manager in television. A producer in television might really be a director as well. This causes no end of problems. So I think defining for each project what a producer will do is critical. Obviously, they are bringing together a lot of processes and things and ensuring stuff um, happens on time. But then a director also has a role over that. So I think different projects require different things and there are very few producers in the VR world that are going to have knowledge of all those processes and things but over time people will get more skilled up across game engines and, and, and different things and have more experience of understanding them. I don't think you have to have detailed knowledge but at the same time if you start suggesting crazy things that are impossible in a game engine you're going to cause a lot of um, frustration and irritation. And Katie, I'm guessing at Passion, there's more of a pipeline in terms of art directors and technical directors. 
There are. It's still generally managed by a, a producer, but obviously we have a lot of kind of studio management doing the day-to-day management across where we have big crews and teams of people. A producer really is there to set the schedule and maintain that communication with the client, the approvals, the sign-offs, and just try and keep everything on track. The awareness of managing a client to a schedule is pretty invaluable. I think that's really interesting because a lot of this work now is about, I guess, trying to sell ideas to clients before they can really get a handle on what it's going to look or feel like. I mean, how do you do that? What's the sort of pitching process? Katie, maybe from your commercial background, how do you win those pitches? Well, I'm very lucky working at Passion that we have lots and lots of incredibly talented artists. And the one thing we're not sure of is someone to to kind of visualise or, or kind of draw something or make. And I think that's a big, important part of it. I'd say that if you asked most people working in this space, and as Zilla says, what comes out the other end looks nothing like that first kind of concept art. But there's something that communicates what you're trying to do. The other side of it, I think, is is really from a commercial point of view, listening to the client brief, making sure you know what's important. Again, in the in the process of so many things going on, it's very easy to lose sight of that and just make sure that's really clearly reiterated back to them that we get you. We understand what this is trying to do. So I think that those those two parts are, are really important in terms of pitch, in terms of, you know, we, we're communicating that we understand the idea. We know why we're doing this in VR. Why, why are we even attempting this? We're all really clear on that. And that we, we give some, something visual that just creates that little bit of traction and confidence that we can then grab hold of their hands, as Zilla says, and not let go until we reach those last weeks of delivery. I'm the doctor. Nice to meet you. Let's talk about Doctor Who The Runaway. Um, it's an incredible piece of VR which was nominated for an Emmy. They hunt down and destroy anyone or anything that threatens the stability of the universe. It's an animated experience voiced by Jodie Whittaker herself, which has you, the user, as her companion. You need to help the Doctor, which is really everyone's wish fulfillment dream to some extent. And I guess I want to know about the challenges involved in turning this much-loved bit of BBC IP into a VR project, because I'm sure there were loads of challenges. And to be clear, Zilla, this was a piece that you commissioned, but Katie at Passion won this project and ran it with the director, Matthias Celleborg. What was the vision for it? Well, Doctor Who is um, the BBC's top brand in terms of dramas. And funny enough, I think when it was originally created, it was a drama that played to the restrictions of early TV drama. It was set in a TARDIS that enabled you as a sort of continuity device to move between different universes. And actually, it works perfectly for VR too, for you to be in a TARDIS and then potentially use that TARDIS as a device to take you to other places. So we thought this is the one to go for. And Passion won the pitch with a really simple idea. It's never simple in VR, but it was in in some ways it was simple to create a a one-act drama within the TARDIS itself rather than jumping off to different universes to really focus on story and drama and to incorporate really fun interactivity in that that did didn't distract from the dramas. And Katie, from your end, what did you want to try and test in the making of this? Because it did push some boundaries, didn't it? Using motion capture for the acting. I mean, purely from an animation perspective, it's incredibly ambitious to kind of get 13 minutes of really good, high quality character performance into that. But I think what we pitched was this idea of, as it was then, five minutes with the Doctor and you get to be her new companion. You get to, you know, you get to play a role. There's a reason that you're there. You need to help her do something to save the universe. And that that 
core idea drove a lot of the other creative decisions. And I think when we come back to this idea of planning, to know what you're trying to achieve, what's the vision at the heart of it, that did drive, you know, it did keep it to the TARDIS, which meant we had to find lots of ways to ramp up drama in one set, in one scene with one person talking to you and you can't move. So, you know, you've got those challenges to work out. It drove the idea of, yeah, putting the budget where it matters, which is into Jodie's performance, because that's going to carry the whole thing. And it drove the idea of like bringing someone like Matthias on board who, who understands that you can use interaction to enhance this idea of presence. You know, there's no game element to it. So it was it was about making you believe you're you're there and you have agency and there's a reason for you to be there. I think for audiences who don't know too much about motion capture, Katie, just tell us what that performance was like. Because obviously people looking at it may not necessarily realise that your performer would have been wearing a mocap suit to capture their physical movements, which saves a lot of animating time, doesn't it? What does it actually involve? To, to hand animate, what we call keyframe animate and CG, it takes a, a vast amount of time and resource, essentially. Um, mocap and performance capture allows you to shortcut that because essentially we're getting some skeletal information by using optical cameras, tracking a performer, a live performer with markers and using that data to supplement our animation. It helps with this idea of presence. It helps that someone's talking to you because you do relate slightly more to a, the human because there's a human driving her movements. It helps with things like lip sync can be incredibly painstaking to do by hand, but we can face track to match that animation performance as well. So actually trying to get that performance out of your mocap actor was vital to getting the feel and energy and the performance that you see at the end, wasn't it? We're not trying to ape Jodie. We're trying to make a, an animated Jodie, which is very different. That performance had to carry the whole piece and I think it was, it was the best solution. And I think you said that originally it was going to be much more of a sort of fixed 360 piece, but Matthias was adamant to make it sixed off, to have freedom of movement. The more we got into the script writing and the more I talked to Matthias, he was like, this has to be sixed off. It has to be, you know, we have to make it fully interactive. But I never got my head around how we were going to fly the TARDIS in VR and he, he showed me it. And I took the headset off and went, yeah, we have to do that. <laughs> and then I think we, we, took it, we took the whole lot to Cardiff and, and showed it. And everyone went, it, well, yes. I mean, you know, it wasn't that quick, but I, it, there were lots of budget discussions going on at the same time. But, but it, that was the process. And it, it showed, it's the power of that, of that demo. This piece is you waking up in the TARDIS and being able to interact with the doctor. So there is a certain level of interactivity. So you, had, you have this motion capture linear piece and then on top of that, we added a lot of layers of interactivity. For example, you can fly the TARDIS for a minute, you can play with props. Whatever you do, most of the time it's screwing up everything and making it worse. Uh, I love using interactivity, not for gameplay. There is no good or right answer in most of my pieces. It's mainly interactivity to ground you inside the story. So that was a clip of Matthias Schellerberg talking at a Story Futures Academy masterclass that he did for us. You can search for it on YouTube. Uh, but I wanted to ask you how much testing you had to do towards the end of this piece, just in terms of the UX and, you know, making sure that people could get to grips with it. We tested the interactions. That's what we really focused on because it was the BBC and we wanted it to be usable by a 13-year-old or a 83-year-old. We wanted to make them absolutely as simple as possible. And that required some testing to get those absolutely right. So that was our focus for the testing because... The interactions are the hardest thing. Ah. 
I want to talk a bit about budgeting because obviously this stuff can cost so much money. How do you start in terms of setting up a budget for a piece? Are you purely driven by, you know, whatever the client has given you or how much you're able to push them if they're really interested in innovation? Katie? It's definitely a hard world and it's definitely a world where expectations don't yet meet available budget purely in terms of economics and business model. We we don't have a way to kind of monetize a lot of the content we're making, mm. but we still want to make it as good as possible. So we know, you know, budgets are, are generally limited. I think for me, we will, the biggest outlay tends to come in terms of just the content, what it will take to make all those assets, all those environments, however many minutes of animation we need. That's the easiest way to start breaking that down. The software development side of it tends to be more of a movable feast. And that's where you're kind of adding a lot more things like contingency and and trying to risk manage that. But, you know, the best place to start is a schedule (laughs) at the weeks you've got to do it and put some man hours against it. Um, And then risk manage the hell out of it. I think that's that's kind of my advice. (laughs) And I think every everyone forgets um, that what you do with it afterwards also costs money. So whether that's taking it to festivals or whether that's the time it takes to then get um, it approved by a a store, um, whatever you're going to do, you're going to need budget beyond the project. You're also going to need different versions for different platforms, um, different social media, little films about it. And I think that's what people are often forgetting is that next stage that the VR is only a part of a bigger package that you have to think through. And let me ask you something a bit about the process of making. So when you've started with an idea, what does the R&D and prototyping phase look like? And how important is it? Everything for us is, is, you know, answer as many questions as possible before we start spending the proper money. So I think it's very important to earmark and probably to go back to your budgeting question, probably more than you will think to this uh, Mm. development pre-production phase, whatever you want to call it, and give yourself time because this is where we can iterate. It's where we want to iterate. We want to try things out and test them and build them and throw them into engines and come out again and redo them. So I think that's that's the really key bit for us. For us, it's nice. It aligns with a kind of animation development pipeline in terms of, you know, we want to make as many decisions upfront as we can. How much work can we do with paper and pencil? That's the cheapest way of working. <laughs> How much work can we do with with Lego and a phone or in a sound bed and our eyes closed? How many things of this can we use before we even can maybe get anywhere near something like Unity or Unreal? Because as soon as we start building assets and making content, we're we're burning budget that we want to spend in those final weeks. No, absolutely. And in my experience at The Guardian, we definitely worked in a sort of audio-led way too. But I think people do it in all sorts of different ways, don't they? And I think a lot of these these ways where we try and work out the problems up front tend to be just, you know, they're, they're all part of that same family, whether we do record the, the script as audio, whether we start putting placeholder music in, whether we start putting, sometimes it's archive images just against that timeline. Sometimes it's proper storyboards. Sometimes it's kind of more kind of blockomatic animation. But all of that stuff is, is just trying to get us to, to you know, what, what essentially is a rough out of the piece and we can understand what's working and what isn't. What are your tips on scripting, actually? Because I think that's an interesting area, isn't it? My experience is that less is more and that often people really need to feel the space for longer than you would in in a narrative film, for instance. I mean, what are the takeaways you've had from some of the scripted work you've done? 
Well, I agree with that completely. We've stripped back scripts enormously for all the journalistic content we've done. People want to see and feel for themselves. You don't want to tell them what they're seeing, as you might, for example, in a news TV package. So, yeah, I, t- I totally agree. When it comes to a scripted drama, trying to build all those sort of story beats into a VR experience, ensure you've got interactivity, all those things make it extremely complicated. And it just takes time, especially if you're going through different iterations with other people chipping in and providing feedback. It's a complicated process for what is ultimately not many words. So while I have you both here, it'd be really great to chat about your more recent projects because you're both pushing the boundaries of immersive tech. I mean, we all know that AR glasses are coming down the line uh, in the next couple of years. And, And Katie, you've recently produced a piece for the HoloLens 2 which are mixed reality glasses currently used more in enterprise, but, you know, possibly more a precursor to what we'll see in the future. So it means that the user can see and interact with animated content through the glasses. Um, Tell me about Critical Distance, which is a piece about orcas that you've recently completed. So this was a collaboration with us and Vision 3, who obviously do fantastic work on environmental themes in immersive media it's the most amazing story, which is about the southern resident orcapods that go between Vancouver Island and Seattle. And they're very well tracked and monitored, but they're in trouble. It was the J-pod where we had one of the mothers essentially carrying her calf around. She was supporting her because they're massively undernourished and it's not just the salmon population decreasing, it's noise pollution. So the idea of this mixed reality experience is that the noise pollution will wreck our echolocation. We can't see the members of our pod, we can't hunt, we can't fish, we can't communicate. Mm. And so it's trying to recreate that feeling for someone uh, and understand that if a shipping lane tanker three miles away comes through the sound, then then you're effectively blind in the water. So it was it's quite it's quite it's quite distressing, but it's also very, very beautiful. And so through the HoloLens, what are you seeing exactly? Is it the sound waves? You're seeing the sort of the strange ghostly forms of orcas made of essentially particles. And then there's an escalating series of overhead noises from small fishing vessels right up to the freight liners that becomes more, I guess, visibly painful Mm. (laughs) as, as, as the distortion takes over. And working with mixed reality, how did that vary from making a VR piece? The main thing is the field of vision is understanding that, you know, people, it's easy for people to get lost because because you're not sort of surrounded by vision. You have to find the orca, track her around the room, watch her play and, and just make sure that story was was consistent. We're dealing with really strict hardware limitations in terms of processing power. So that that restricts how we build assets. And best of all, because we delivered in the first month of lockdown, (laughs) when you have one HoloLens headset, (laughs) one HoloLens 2 headset between your team, you've got no way at all of testing it. So yeah, it was a challenge. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it when it comes out. Zilla, you were recently doing some work with Satori Studios, a really innovative company who've been doing a lot of work using virtual production techniques, so using game engines like Unity and Unreal, um, but for live events or things like virtual fashion shows, for instance. It's the sort of thing we've seen from the making of The Mandalorian or The Lion King. Tell me a little bit about what you've been experimenting with recently. 
Well, we've been having a real push on trying to create um, compelling demonstrations to show what a brilliant creative tool virtual production techniques can be, which of course involves the use of game engines and, and tracking and or many of the things that have been developed for VR. I'm really excited about broadcast AR, which enables you to essentially put graphics you might have once added in post-production into pre-production and add them live to a stream as it goes out. We've created a demo with a, a cellist playing the swan from the Carnival of the Animals against an LED backdrop where she's surrounded by a lake and, and beautiful scenery. And a swan flies around her and is beautifully occluded as it, it, it flies beyond her, just to help people understand what's now possible. And I think the opportunities for enhancing live streaming or, or broadcast of um, concerts and things when there's limited audiences able to be in a concert hall are really exciting there. So, so those are the sort of things that, that excite me. It's combining different technologies, creating new pipelines that bring together software for physical lighting into game engines, being able to really play with how you use the cameras there to create beautiful effects. It's really exciting. And finally, working in this industry or for people who are looking to enter it, what are the top three skills you think are in short supply that people could really arm themselves with? Resilience. I think everything is going to take longer than you think and be harder than you think. And when you, even the projects that you think when you set off, you go, oh, this is really simple and straightforward. There's always, there's always more to do. So I think, you know, we're in, we're in a world where when things are new, it will, it will always take you longer and be a bit more difficult. I think that good communication, everything, you know, from that, that understanding that, that vision of the piece to translating across teams, to making sure the client is on board, right? right to the end when they're still feeling a bit wobbly that your kind of final lighting and effects aren't in all of that so resilience communication what's the last one risk management i think yeah just just think about all the things that could go wrong and then hopefully they won't and, and I'd say, I'd say communication, definitely. You're communicating with different sorts of people with terminology that can be confusing. Secondly, project management, which includes risk management, but some understanding of how to manage complex projects is, is really critical. And then thirdly, thinking about the audience, it's so easy to get totally wrapped up in, in the technical challenges and everything else and sort of forget who's going to be watching at the end and what they want. And so I'd say keeping your eye on that prize, the audience at the end of it as the bigger picture is is really critical too brilliant thanks so much for joining us today thank you thank you so i think what we've learned from zilla and katie is that to be a successful producer you're going to need a myriad of skills you're going to have to be a great project manager you're going to need to manage risk make compromises talk to all kinds of different stakeholders and decide how to allocate your money there's a lot of creative problem solving required around allocating resources that will make the most impact within your budget. You're also overseeing the work that happens when a piece is finished, from testing to marketing, and it's important to budget for that too. Finally, don't forget about your audience at the end of it. As Zilla says, keep your eyes on the prize. And yes, you do need to get your head around the technical side of this world to be able to have those conversations. But that's all part of the fun. As with all the programmes in this series, you can explore the subjects we've been discussing through the links in our show notes and also by viewing the Story Futures Academy podcast pages on the website. 
That's storyfutures.com forward slash podcast. In the next show, we'll be tackling the subject of how to write for character-based VR experiences. We'll be talking to Russell Harding and Kerry Colby from Maze Theory, who are developing the new Peaky Blinders VR experience, and Adam Gantz, head of the Writers' Room at Story Futures Academy. Story Futures Academy is the UK's National Centre for Immersive Storytelling and is funded as part of UKRI's Audience of the Future Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund.